listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Given the nature of the people I talk to on this show, it's fair to say that most of my guests are moving pretty fast. Well, in a fast-paced industry, today's guest is someone who is moving noticeably faster than others. Nick Cook of BMS Group has trebled the size of this broking business in four years. And BMS has just completed a major refinancing deal that will enable it to go even faster. In this breathless podcast, we cover the full spectrum of BMS's strategy and examine the international specialist insurance and reinsurance intermediation landscape in extraordinary detail. It's great stuff. To keep the momentum going, BMS is going to push hard in reinsurance to create a unified global broker with a single point of contact that will be able to challenge the big three in select areas. At the same time, it will push even harder in London wholesale and accelerate its acquisition strategy in specialist international retail markets, as well as re-evaluating its MGA proposition. What's clear from this lively and good-humoured exchange is that Nick's energy and passion for the job is wholly undiminished since we last spoke two and a half years ago. If anything, he just seems to be getting started. It's a real tour de force in which we discuss all aspects of growing a global reinsurance and specialty intermediary. Nothing's off the menu, and Nick's enthusiasm is infectious, so I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Nick, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Excited to be here again. It was really good to see you again because, well, for one, this, we're face-to-face in your office in One America Square, right in the heart of the city of London. Last time it was during one of those uh, horrible lockdown and we were all sort of sitting in bedrooms and wondering if our Wi-Fi was working and all that kind of stuff. And we were just remarking on that before I turned the tape recorder on. It's been a hell of a journey since I last spoke to you. BMS is very much a different business. It's probably doubled in size since we last spoke, or trebled in size, potentially. Certainly, you've trebled in size in the last four years is what I've yes, done yeah, to work yeah. out. So what should we expect from you in, in the next four, Nick? Well, I think there's an easy answer to that, Mark, which is much of the same. And I know, I know that probably sounds a little dull, but it isn't. I can sort of break that down. The simplicity of the strategy that we sold to Eurasio when we looked to refinance was this is your new success. This is your new finance. This is the new finance, which I'm sure we'll come on and talk yeah. about in, in due course. But we've got three core pillars, and the three core pillars are reinsurance, specialty London, and our growing international platform around the world. And it's more of the same. We know what we're recognized for. We know what we're good at. And we will continue to invest and grow in those areas. In terms of the short term, so I'm looking at the next 12 months, we absolutely want to launch a global reinsurance strategy. We want to have a single point of entry. We've grown magnificently in our reinsurance business over the last four years, in particular following the investment from BCI and PCP. We've been very much centered in the US on reinsurance. We started to grow our Bermudan business and our London platform, but we very much want to pivot now in terms of our reinsurance business and offer one global reinsurance solution, which is very similar to the large three reinsurance brokers. So that's a short-term goal over the next 12 months. Is that because now you're not really a small reinsurance broker anymore? Well, thank you. And yes, I think, you know, we've got over 300 people working in our reinsurance business, Mark, and revenue's close on to 200 million. And the offering, the product offering and the analytics and the cap advisory and the capital markets play that we have. So I think that investment over the last three or four years has meant that now is the time to pivot and really look at putting in place a global reinsurance structure. And candidly, that's what our clients want. 
when you're a reinsurance buyer, that's what you're wanting. You're wanting a single point of entry into a broker, offering all the services that a traditional reinsurance broker should offer. And now we believe over the next 12 months is the time to do that. And that's really that you can be more of a generalist and you can probably go head to head with those big I three. think in any given chosen area where we have to recognize that we can't be all things to everybody. We're not of the scale, but we can do in certain areas and certain product lines where we absolutely can match that capability, then that's exactly what we will do indeed. In terms of the London platform, you will know this only too well, and it's well documented through your podcasts and through all of the press and everything else that, you know, all roads lead to specialty. The specialty market is buzzing, whether that's linked to climate change, inflation, interest rates, or whatever else it may be. And our specialty business is reflecting that growth. We're seeing more and more business come into the London market across most product lines, particularly from the US. So our ability to grow into that sector over the next four years, and you mentioned four years, it could be much longer than that is significant. And then the third pillar, which is probably our youngest pillar, which really reflects the investment we received back in 2019, is our international platform around the world. And we've used over the last two or three years, acquisitions. M&A has been our way to grow that. Growing a business 6,000 miles away organically is quite a challenge. And so we've used some of that capital that we were fortunate to receive back in 2019 in terms of buying businesses that are culturally aligned, strategically aligned. So it's three-pronged. Short-term, we really want to ramp up on the global reinsurance play. Medium-term, more of the same in terms of deeper dive in terms of product in London within our specialty business, and then internationally using M&A to grow our current platform. And just in terms of that current platform, it's about 50-50 reinsurance insurance. So within that insurance segment, how much is specialty? How much is that international retail? It's probably 70% specialty, 30% international, but growing very quickly. So we'll expect that international retail to grow. Yes, I would. I would expect when, you know, and we'll talk, I'm sure, about cycle of investments within our investors. But when I think about this over the next four or five years, I'd expect it to be a third, a third, a third. And so our international operation will have insurance and reinsurance. The London platform clearly has insurance and reinsurance. And indeed, obviously, our reinsurance business will continue to grow. So it'll be a fairly even split. I don't expect the blend to change between insurance and reinsurance dramatically. If we succeed, and I'm sure we will, in terms of really building out a global reinsurance platform, then one could expect that that blend may change slightly, but not dramatically. The acquisitions are going to be in that retail space, presumably because there are always retail brokers that can be acquired, presumably we wouldn't expect to see anything much on the reinsurance side because there really isn't anything necessary for sale to buy. <laughs> well, well, who knows? Well, yeah, we no, one no, never knows. Absolutely right. No, no, no. I think <laughs> we would dearly love to be a player in terms of M&A in the reinsurance world, but I think that's a well-trodden field. I do believe there is more unsettlement to come within the reinsurance world on the broking side, and so we will hopefully be a net beneficiary of that. In terms of the retail build-out, I do want to make an important point here, which is when we look at acquisitions around the world, most, if not all of those acquisitions, Mark, are not for sale. So we do not enter a process. These are brokers and organizations that we've traded with, that we know. And so we've built up a relationship with them. We're either their London broker or we're servicing them in a territory or whatever else it might be. We get to know them. And then we start to have a conversation around, you know, one-on-one, does it equal two or does it actually equal three? Because that's, we want to see whether our investment into that acquisition can grow that business. So that's the first point. The second point I'd like to make is when we think of retail, this isn't traditional retail. So I'll give you some examples. We bought a business in Latin America this year, 100% surety reinsurance. That's all that they do. We bought a business in Europe, which was fundamentally an affinity-based broker. We're an affinity retail broker in Melbourne, in Australia. 
we're an affinity broker in Canada. So we want to make sure that we are true specialists when we look at acquiring quasi-retail businesses around the world. And the last point I'd make on those acquisitions is clearly, culturally, it's critical that there is that fit. So we're not an organization that is buying for the sake of buying, that is buying purely EBITDA. They have to fit strategically and they have to fit culturally. Right. Yes, because I was going to ask exactly how those things fit. And they fit because they're naturally classes that you're already really strong at here in London and you've been doing the reinsurance for, that kind of thing. So initially, absolutely right. If it's got a London play, then that's obviously even better. But as we look to scale those operations, and again, I'm sure we'll come and talk about that in terms of where we're deploying that investment. But as we look to scale our current footprint, we will obviously increase London revenue that comes in from our own organization. So that's an added benefit. But if we don't have the skill set in London and they have London market business, it would be slightly odd that we would make that acquisition. So it needs to be aligned with our current expertise in the London market. So it's much more sort of people that you've known for quite a long time. Obviously, naturally, a lot of those retail brokers will be sitting and looking 20 years hence and thinking, yeah, I probably do need to ally myself with some global broker. Yes, uh, And they, they thought, well, it'd be nice to do it with you. You're right, absolutely. But not exclusively. I mean, what we've asked all of our CEOs around the world who are phenomenal leaders in their own right. What we've asked them all to do, they know their market better than we do in London. So our M&A strategy is not London driven. It is very much locally driven. They know who the good competitors are. They know who they rub shoulders with day to day, and they know what the good businesses are. So we look for them to introduce and then see whether we, alongside that organization, can grow and maybe, of course, add London market revenue. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. And presumably, sometimes they will use another London wholesaler because they've got a great relationship with them. And <laughs> That's a good point. And, and yes, we're in a competitive market. You'd love them to be using you, but then you're probably going to use you if, you if you're the best. I think over a period of time, Mark, we would expect them to use us. <laughs> I think it's probably the best way to put that. But we recognise that we don't always have that skill set. We are a broker when we acquire a business that we want that business to be fully integrated into BMS. And I think that's really important. So we want them to buy into the culture. We want them to buy into our vision. I'm not a believer in just acquiring a business and letting those operators just to run as a separate business. We want them to embrace the brand, embrace the culture and embrace the strategy. Yeah, and get to know all their colleagues around the world and exactly. see what they can do together. Yeah. Obviously, if the retail growth is likely to be by acquisition at the beginning, but you post a pretty strong organic growth, about 15%, which is well above the market. What sort of percentage of that future growth, if you say you were to double in, in the next four years, or would you treble again in the next four years, what would be by acquisition and what would be by that organic growth? Historically, underpinning our growth has been a phenomenal organic performance. And to me, that's the litmus test of a successful business. And in terms of through the rounds when we were looking at potential new investors, you know, the discussions center around your organic growth and your culture. And those are the two fundamental drivers of value. 
And no one should underestimate how much value is attributed to organic growth. So we are absolutely, as you say, actually, it's north of 15%, Mark. So our true organic compound annual growth over the last three to four years is 25%, which is a very, very high mark indeed, and a sign of the talent that we have been hiring and the pace at which we've been growing. So in some ways, is this the semantic difference between organic growth and inorganic growth? But actually, of course, all growth really has to come with those people that bring that growth. You can't really grow without necessarily growing headcount. I mean, you yeah. can, obviously. It's always every business owner's mission to make us all more efficient and more productive. And I'm sure we will all get more productive, particularly in this digitized world that we're building. But you really can't grow at these sort of 25 plus rates without bringing in more people. It is all about talent. It absolutely is. So you're either acquiring people one way or another. You're either acquiring people, (laughs) yes, organically, or you're acquiring them through a merger or an acquisition. But in terms of percentages, roughly about 80% of our growth comes out of organic growth. And we would include new hires in that. And then true acquisitions is about 20% of the growth. And the plan that we've committed to our new investors and BCI and PCP, who have, of course, rolled over 100% of their investment, is much of the same as I said right at the start. So this isn't a moment with new capital that we're suddenly going to pivot and say that 50% of our growth is going to come from acquisitions. What I would say is it's 14 acquisitions in the last 18 months, and it's 11 this year. So we've been running quite hard, but they're small bolt-on strategic culturally aligned acquisitions in territories that we currently exist. We now have the ability through financial resources, but also in terms of resourcing our M&A capabilities here in London, we now have the capability to increase the cadence. So we could look at acquiring bigger companies with larger revenue, larger headcount, larger EBITDA, And that is something that is likely to happen. But in terms of blend, what Eurasio have bought into, what PCI and PCP are very much committed to, and so are we as a management team, Mark, is solid, organic, traditional growth. And in this current market, why not? I mean, everything's in our favor as we currently sit here. There's no signs of a soft market coming. We've still got a very, very buoyant rating environment. So organic growth should be the key driver. In many, many geographies in the world, and I think the website says 33 offices, it may may be out of date. No, 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 Uh, I think it's about right, 33. Are there any geographies where you're not where you'd like to be, or is it more about deepening where you already are? Spot on. It, It very much, in the initial phase of this recent investment, it's very much about deepening where we currently are, and we want to build scale. We've concentrated in the last 12 months in Australia, where we've made five acquisitions, we've made four acquisitions in Spain, a very vibrant market. There's a lot of interest. You mentioned it right at the outset, Mark. There are a lot of independent brokers who traditionally over recent years might have thought of the big three if they were looking for trade. Now there are a number of other independent brokers with significant investments, significant backers, both private equity, sovereign wealth fund, or indeed pension fund who are playing in those markets. And what BMS offers is something a little different. We offer a global platform, but we're significantly smaller. And so there's huge opportunity in those markets. Now, that said, there are some other markets around the world that are very, very competitive. The Benelux, Germany, multiples and valuations in those markets are sky high. So for the moment, we absolutely want to double down where we are, want to create that scale, create synergy in terms of revenue into London. And from there, we may build beyond. And I suppose because the sort of brokers that you're buying are very specialist, then when you buy another broker in the same territory, you don't get that kind of big clash and huge amounts of overlap because you're presumably buying into another specialty and they don't really cross over. Well, we need to be very careful because the bedrock of BMS going back many, many years is a reinsurance broker. But more recently, we've been building out a specialty 
the word wholesale, Mark, seems to disappear. Everyone's now referring to it as yes, a specialty, yes. but we are a wholesale broker in London. I'm, and I don't really know where the word specialty came from. I would say surely it should be speciality. Speciality. I'm not yeah. pointing my finger over the Atlantic, but I, I think I think I know where it came from. <laughs> so we are a wholesale broker in London. We have strong, really strong trading relationships in Australia, in Spain, in lots of territories where we also have an office on the ground. So when you're thinking of an acquisition, you've got to make sure channel conflict is absolute paramount. So we're an affinity broker in Spain, but we're a construction broker in terms of wholesale, or we're an energy broker in terms of wholesale. And there are other brokers, JLT is a really good example, that had a multitude of retail operations around the world, but we're a powerhouse in terms of a wholesale broker in London. So you can play in both fields, absolutely. What about the US? Often it's a traditional sort of no-no to say, right, we will never do retail in the US. Would that be on your list of no-nos or not? I certainly think from BMS acquiring anything in the US is a no. We are a reinsurance broker, a capital markets and advisory business in the US, and long may that continue. We have strong partnerships with US retail brokers and US wholesalers and MGAs, and there is absolutely no strategy, no pivot that we're going to be a direct primary player in the US market. We are a reinsurance player in that market. On the ground, we've got over 250 people now on the ground in the US across 10 locations. We clearly have a very large specialty wholesale book that comes in from the US into the London platform. But in terms of footprint in the US, reinsurance only. The last time we spoke was episode 66, and we we're on 186 as we make this recording. So it'll probably be about 188 or 189 by the time this episode becomes a numbered episode. Something that may have been a pivot, I don't know, is one of your recent, you mentioned some of those acquisitions in Australia. One of them was an MGA. Yes. I'd have to go back over what you said in episode yeah. 66, but I don't think MGA was a big part of your strategy right then. Obviously, well, I think I probably would have been one of my stock questions at the time because MGAs were sort of exploding Doing as they still are. Everyone. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. No, I, I think that the answer to the question back in 2020 would have been, we had a very small MGA in Canada, which has grown over the last two or three years. We've launched a small MGA, but again, very, very specific and niche in Latin America. We've got one building in Spain, and we did acquire an MGA down in Australia. So I mentioned those three core pillars that we have, specialty, reinsurance, and international. I think it's fair to say that with the additional financial resources that we have and the growing global footprint that we have, that we will look to build out an MGA capability. And let me be clear about where that is. Around the world, where we have specialty retail, we can add distribution through an MGA play. So we can either acquire or build, and there's no channel conflict. So we're more than happy to do that, and you will see us do that. So in terms of acquiring international MGAs, yes, BMS is an acquirer of international MGAs outside of the US. So when I say international, I don't mean the UK yeah. or the US. London's really interesting. Once bitten, twice shy. So we've been part of an organization that had an underwriting company Absolutely, alongside. Yeah. And also, I do question the channel conflict. What we want to do in London is we want to build our reinsurance business in London. And then at the same time, you're looking to build an MGA. I think there could be a challenge there. So I'm not saying never, because that would be incorrect. But I'm saying there would be real caution if around us building an MGA. A large part of your business is supporting and finding capital to support MGAs, then they might rather Absolutely you right. didn't yeah. have one so of your I, own. Yeah. Others do it. I mean, many brokers do do it, and, and they do it extremely well. That said, to do it from scratch, I think we would need to be very careful about building out an MGA in London. So I'm not saying never, but I'm just saying I don't think in the short term. And then in the US, a big part of what we do is a reinsurance broker to the MGA community. 
And that's MGAs that are aligned to US retail brokers or it's independent large MGAs where we're offering capital, reinsurance, solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And we see that as a really growing area of our business. It's a niche area for us. We're investing heavily in that area. We've just rebranded our MGA reinsurance practice in the US to ProLink. We're investing heavily in data and analytics around that. So absolutely categorically, no, we will not be owning or buying an MGA on the ground in the US. That rediscovery, should we say, or sort of reinvigoration of MGA strategy, is it just a recognition that sometimes it's just the best way of getting to market? Well, I think absolutely. We go back to distribution, the best way of, of selling product to the market, absolutely through an MGA. I think you can align it well against a specialty retail play. There's some phenomenal talent that's available in that area. So, you know, we go back to what underpins this entire business is talent and people. And so if we have that opportunity to acquire that talent in an MGA that doesn't create conflict, why not? I bumped into Emmanuel Clark at Monte Carlo. I didn't get him on tape. It was one of those ones where it was a quick sort of bump in the lobby of the Hotel de Paris while we were both waiting for our next meeting. And I was sort of asking, you know, what he was up to, what his next gig was going to be. And he's as inscrutable as all chairmen yeah. should be. Yeah, yeah. But there was a bit of a glint in his eyes because it was only a couple of weeks later that, of course, the, the news came. So he's a lifelong underwriter. I don't think he's been a broker. Well, he's now. My knowledge. He is now. <laughs> he is now. <laughs> is that part of cementing that MGA strategy, the idea that, to have an underwriter, or is it just that he's Candidly, a guy? no. Candidly, no. I mean, actually, we've got a bit of a track record in terms of underwriters that have contributed at board level to BMS. So. John Hastings Bass was formerly chairman of Novi, of um, and of course he was uh, JLT and Gallagher. Uh, Gilles Bonvalet, who's on our board, was uh, on the board of Amlin and Brockbank. And of course, Dom Odesso, who was formerly uh, CEO of Everest Re, is chairman of our operation in the US. And the reason why I like it, Mark, is very, very simple. All of those individuals have run global businesses, selling, in terms of John, insurance and reinsurance. They've seen both sides of the fence. They also know, from a broking perspective, well, you'd hope they would, what good looks like. And so the challenge that we get around the board table and around the various organizations is phenomenal from those individuals. They are incredibly experienced, huge in-depth knowledge of our industry. They know what good and bad looks like. And so you end up having a very robust debate because they have a very different perspective. I wouldn't want a board that was surrounded by brokers because that's what we are. And, and so Emmanuel, in a very, very short space of time, has been incredibly positive around our desire to build out our global reinsurance practice. And of course, he ran a global reinsurance company. So it will be very interesting to see how all four of them can contribute to our continued global expansion. We always talk about diversity yeah. of opinion, diversity of thought. Well, actually, having a load of underwriters and helping to run a broker is a really good idea. <laughs> it's a good idea. Well, you certainly get challenged. So that's, that is no doubt. Yeah. So you're just broking your way <laughs> well, through the board meeting. Well, you, I mean, you've got to remember there are investors in that board meeting as well. So it's a fairly <laughs> lively board meeting and environment just generally. Yeah. It always surprises me how much consolidation we've managed to get through all around the world. I mean, you go to any retail market and you see large consolidators hoovering up large segments of the marketplace, and then there always seem to be more to be done. I mean, over the whole of my insurance career in London, and now let's say the average size of the London wholesalers probably got bigger, but at the same time, they're probably we've created probably loads of small ones that we're not aware of because they're slightly below the radar. Do you think we're coming to an end game in London wholesale consolidation, or what do you think's happening at the moment? So when I talk to most people, they say it's still not done. No, it's far from done. So the short answer is, you know, no, it sort we're of feels not. like we're it's not. done. Well, no, 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 it's not. And I think there are, there are a number of factors that one should consider. So one is 
You think of the level investment from private equity, sovereign wealth funds, and pension funds in our industry. Within financial services, the, the broader financial services sector, the insurance industry, whichever side, whether you're looking at balance sheet or you're looking at insurance distribution, has given phenomenal returns to those investors over a sustained period. So there are many, many investors that have been recent underbidders on assets that have come up that are still keen to get into, particularly the specialty market mark. So I can tell you that firsthand from when we went through our refinance in terms of the level of interest in the specialty market and reinsurance. Specialty and reinsurance, which so you is- You had many suitors. I would say suitors. I would say there was a, a huge depth of interest across a very broad investor spectrum, globally. I mean, truly globally. So that's the first thing. There are a number of interested buyers. So that's number one. Number two is, if you think back to 2018 and 2019, when a number of large private equity houses took big plays into the insurance distribution world, those assets are coming up to the end of their cycle and they're looking to capitalize on those investments. So my expectation is there'll be a number of those that come to the market. So you've got supply. There's no doubt you've got supply. There are also, as we come out of maybe some of the most challenging macroeconomic times that we've had in recent past, and if you look 12, 24 months ahead, people will be feeling slightly more buoyant about life. There are a number of these private equity funds that are out there raising new funds. And to raise those new funds, they need to give a return to their investors on those original funds that they invested in. So you've got that environment. The third point I'd make is, look what the US retail environment is doing. US retail brokers are in certainly the last 12 months, Mark, become very acquisitive in London. A number of US retailers have bought London assets. I don't see that stopping. I think as options narrow in terms of entry into the London market, I think there'll be more and more US retail looking to acquire in London. Interestingly, a number of large European retailers are also backed by private equity pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. And I think they feel slightly miffed that they've missed out on this specialty bubble. And they are beginning to flex their muscles in terms of looking about how they can get into the London specialty market and the broader reinsurance market. So I just think there's a lot of interest in this sector. There are a number of large independent brokers in the sector who have significant investments from both private equity, pension fund and sovereign wealth funds, all of whom go through these cycles, these natural cycles. And so it's far from done. It's far from done. There's also, as people consider, management teams consider, investors consider, an eventual turn in the market cycle. Scale matters. Scale and diversification matters. Investors look for scale and they look for diversification. And so brokers that have performed well, both in terms of growing their specialty business, growing their reinsurance business, will always be in demand. And just speaking personally, from the level of interest in this market that I see continually with the number of investors that are looking to get into this market of ours, I don't see it slowing up. I really don't. Now, what you could argue is, well, is there the choice? Are there that number? There are those that say they are not for sale and those that will need to refinance at some stage because that's the natural cycle that we all live in and that will throw up opportunities. So I do not think it's done at all. And you're part of this world, of course. Okay, you're on a new yes. new cycle now, no, so you've got breathing space for a few yeah. years, but you, know, you don't necessarily have the clock on the wall. You don't have to look at it breathing, ticking breathing. every day. And, and some of the commentary around the nervousness about being owned by private equity, I, I, I just fundamentally disagree. I think that the great joy that we have now is we have three investors, all of whom are minority investors. The majority of this business is owned by the employees and by a pension fund. That's as long-term capital as you can get. The joy of private equity is it gives you investment, capital, direction, discipline, 
And at the end of the day, it gives us the opportunity to bring in liquidity. And it's commonplace in the US. It's commonplace. You look at some of the larger independent retail brokers perpetually refinancing every two to three years. There's some large global brokers headquartered in London that are also on that same path. So it's the connection that I find troubling, the connection between private equity and we must sell. No, no, no. We absolutely need to refinance. And to be crystal clear on this point, a really good example is our recent refinance where BCI and PCP didn't take one pound off the table. They reinvested 100%. So they've gone back into a new cycle, having reinvested 100% of their proceeds from back in 2019. And we were able to bring in a third sponsor, Eurasio, which gave liquidity to the employees, which who have now taken that liquidity and reinvested. So that model to me and to many others, particularly in the US, is forever independence. Could you think that can go on forever? I mean, would it just suddenly make more sense to be a public company at that point? If you increasingly spend a huge amount of your time or members of your board are spending a lot of time permanently refinancing, you think, well, you, you might as well just do your quarterly uh, returns on the stock exchange like everybody else does. <laughs> well, when you say permanently refinancing, you know, we ended up refinancing probably two years ahead of plan. And that was because of the success of the business and the growth that we achieved. So that's a positive. I don't see that as a negative. I think that's a significant positive. So there wasn't a requirement for us to refinance when we did. We refinanced because of the performance, the outstanding performance of the business. We wanted to refinance our debt. We wanted to refinance our acquisition facility because we wanted to have a much more significant ability to deploy capital in terms of acquisitions. And we wanted more equity because of what we think is going to happen around us. Now, you might question the timing because pre-summer 2022, everything was looking rosy and down. The interest rates were rock bottom and it was all very easy to refinance these deals. And, and then, you know, along came autumn. And the macroeconomic picture changed overnight and it became a challenge. But the resilience of Eurasio, I think primarily, and the success of our business allowed us to get that refinancing away. So we're now in pole position. We have refinanced our business. There are other brokers and other organizations out there, Mark, that aren't in that position. So an IPO, it's always discussed in terms of a possible exit for any private equity. For us, we're not a global retail model. So I would argue that might be a little bit of a challenge. And I think personally, there is such interest and supply of interested capital in our market, in our sector, whether it's reinsurance or whether it's specialty, that in the medium term, and I can't go much beyond the medium term, there would be no reason for a public listing. Obviously, we've had a very active time in reinsurance. It's a bit like currency markets of nothing happens for years and suddenly this usually a tectonic plate just sort of goes crash. We had not much happening. And then Benfield was taken over by Aon 2008. And then what's happened over the last three to four years, I'd say is a comparable period, but even more of a sort of Jurassic period, all sorts of stuff going on. It was Marsh taking over JLT with that, and then JLT Re being part of that. And then Aon's failed merger with Willis, again, really setting the cat amongst the pigeons. During that period, obviously, it must have been good for you as an independent sitting there yeah. with a flag saying, look, come over here. You don't have to do all the politics over there. You can come and we can carry on growing. Do you think you could have been more aggressive to take that opportunity or do you think you did it aggressively enough? <laughs> Great with, question. Just with hindsight. I, no, no, no. I think hindsight, yes. Could we have been more aggressive? Undoubtedly. Would we have been more successful though? I'm not so sure. As I said earlier, we're very strategic about the bets that we make and cultural fit for us is absolutely crucial. So there were probably many opportunities for us to acquire talent 
with significant reinsurance accounts, but does that talent fit? Or ultimately, might that talent erode a culture that we're immensely proud of and very protective of? And so we could have, without doubt, Mark, run much, much harder. That said, I think the team, the reinsurance team, has done a phenomenal job. When Pete Chandler joined in 2019, we made a commitment to double the size of the business over five years. He did it in three, and he did it by hiring phenomenal talent, broadening the product, and that's been a huge success. What I said to you earlier was now we believe is the time to really look at a global reinsurance offering with one single point of entry. So we want to invest more in the UK. Could we have done that previously? I don't think we could have done. I don't think we were ready. I think we were very focused on our specialty London business. Bermuda is a relatively new entry for us, and we are definitely subscale in Bermuda, and we can certainly increase our footprint in Bermuda. So I think we could have run a lot harder in the US. I'm not sure we would have got that right. So I think strategically what we've achieved is fantastic, delighted, really happy where we are, phenomenal foundations. 300 people in the reinsurance business, 30 actuaries across it, a growing cap advisory, capital markets business. Now is the time probably. You've to got put, a weatherman to, as well. To, now <laughs> we have the weatherman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Andy Siffert. So now is the time to probably put our foot flat to the floor. We mentioned this before. This business is all about talent, really. Isn't it? It's about attracting that talent. You mentioned before about cultural fit as well. I mean, it sounds like you get the chance to acquire somebody, perhaps, or a team of somebody's who who are likely to be their own sort of business unit within your business. And they've got this account. They don't share it to anyone else. They won't tell anyone how they do this. They won't teach anyone else what they do or how they do. They won't teach them how to fish in their pond. And they're very protective. Presumably, those are the sort of people you don't really want. No, I think those sort of mavericks, if I can call them that. No, if we're hiring individuals or teams of individuals or, or whatever else it may be, the model that we have, and I'll give you an example. So a few years ago, we didn't have an energy play in London. And so we wanted to build an energy play. And we spent 18 months mapping that market to understand culturally, strategically, what was the best area of that broader market to go into as a first stage and who were the good and talented leaders out there. And we found an unbelievably talented leader and built a business around them. And the message to those individuals is a simple message. It's come in and help us build a business in this particular case in the energy sector. Our job as management is to help them do that. Our job is not to tell them who they trade with, where they trade, what particular type of energy sector they decide to trade in, who they hire. So that autonomy, that immediate autonomy is given to them. We then obviously resource it financially and non-financial resources, and we give them that freedom to grow. And what they end up doing is they end up building a business within a business, but equally helping us create value as a whole. They have an earn out equity model, so they earn into our equity, which is in today's War on talent, I still believe is the holy grail, is you know if you have the ability to offer equity to talent and they can build that equity up over performance and at the end of any given period, you can give them liquidity in that equity. Imagine how powerful that is. And also you're giving them the autonomy to put their thumbprint on something that they can look back on. They've built a long-term sustainable business backed by long-term capital. They've built up their equity, value creation for the business, but also wealth creation for them as individuals. And they've put their own thumbprint on it. That's immensely powerful. A number of people will leave this business retiring with a big happy smile on their face. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing to have happened, having dealt with their succession and everything else. So that equity model is very, very, very powerful, no doubt. But please don't underestimate the other key factor, which is culture. 
Yeah, culture's banded around left, right, and center, but we are immensely proud of what we've built here. And culture and the environment in which you work and the values which you hold. So it's about being the sort of people who are going to be teaching the next generation. It is about leadership. I think culture in BMS is around true collaboration. And how do you create that? You create that via alignment and the equity structure creates alignment for us. We don't have a multitude of classes of shares. We have one share. Our shareholders and staff are prepared to dilute on the basis of bringing in new talent on the basis that talent is accreted. And that has meant that you create that alignment across the shareholding. You then create collaboration. So back to reinsurance and what I said about this global structure around reinsurance and one point of entry, we're completely agnostic on any client of BMSs, whether it's an ILS solution, a traditional reinsurance solution, it could be a binder, it could be open market. It doesn't matter because ultimately the value in the business is growing the equity value of the company. And so that's what creates that alignment. That's what creates a high performance culture. That's what creates collaboration. And that's why I think we've been hugely successful. But stripping that back to just one more point, which is in everything we do, we put people at the core of our thinking. So primarily, first and foremost, that's your customer, number one. So back to that agnostic solution. It's not driven by a PL, it's not driven by a territory, it's not driven by a certain product. It's what is the best solution for that client? And we should be completely agnostic so long as we can serve for that solution. So that's number one. And the second thing is, and this is something that others know that I rant on about, which is let's not overcomplicate this industry. We are selling a product that pretty much every buyer needs. And who sells that? That the people, individuals sell that product. Technology and data is there to help us do it. But I truly believe you cannot substitute for that people relationship. And we invest heavily marketing our people. And that goes round back to our culture. And so culture, alignment, equity is, I think, the holy grail to how we are able to attract some phenomenal talent and more importantly, retain talent. On the talent side in reinsurance broking, it's always been in great demand, but it's been in more demand as new entrants have looked to build a share in that space, looking to take that opportunity that they saw to build a reinsurance broker organically. Do you expect margins to be squeezed? Because it doesn't seem like we're quite done yet in terms of reinsurance broking that we probably expect another entrant, a well-financed entrant to be coming soon. Do you expect margins to be squeezed? Sounds like you know something that I don't know. But um, so I I, I think BMS... Only read the press. No, 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 well, quite. There will be talent that comes available. But in terms of margin, I think, look at our reinsurance business, and it's extremely healthy. It's still extremely healthy in terms of the margin growth, the margin that we can create within that business. So it's a very fertile hunting ground. You have to accept that in certain areas of that market, you could argue it's overpriced. So you've got to pick and choose. And you've got to make sure, back to what I said earlier, you've got to make sure that those individuals you're looking to hire can create value through growing their business. You're not just looking for farmers who are bringing in their accounts just to farm what they've currently got. The organization and the talent that you hire are looking to grow. I suppose, again, it's all about the growth. If you get the growth, then it never feels like overpaying. (laughs) Yeah, and there are other CEOs who you know only too well who absolutely would endorse that comment that would say that, you know, as long as you're growing, as long as that underlying organic growth is year on year, then all is well. Nick, it's been a great tour de force. I was at the clock and it was about, we had about 12 minutes and I thought we probably already answered all the questions I was going to ask. And so it's been great because it's sort of made me 
ask you other questions that weren't necessarily on my list of things to ask you, and you've been very gracious in answering most of those, all of those, in fact. So do you think there's anything else we missed? Yes, Mark. There's absolutely one thing I want to talk about, which is going back to talent. And I should have said this when we were talking about talent. I get quite frustrated when I hear in the market that all we're doing is regurgitating talent from broker to broker, from underwriter to underwriter, and that we're not doing enough in terms of diversity and gender equality around hiring across the market. I just don't see that. Look, I know we can do a lot more, but if I think of BMS and our role in the wider market, we are hiring a great diverse talent from outside of the industry. Yes, of course, we regurgitate within the industry and we hire talent from competing brokers and others, but we're hiring more actuaries who have never been in the industry before. We're hiring data scientists. We're hiring lawyers. We're hiring young talent who's never been exposed to the insurance or reinsurance market. We're actively out there in communities, really engaging with the young community. We've got a strong graduate trainee program, a strong apprentice program. So that just doesn't correlate with what I read and hear in the press. And I think maybe, is that a London phenomenon? Maybe are we talking down the London market? And we shouldn't be. We should be doing the opposite. Now, I know for certain we're nowhere near complete. But please, let's all rally together and actually let's pat ourselves on the back and say, we're doing a great job and everybody has a role to play in this. And so let's embrace what we've done already and embrace the success that we're creating and this phenomenal young talent that's joining the business. And let's trade on the positives rather than always on the negatives. So that's just a little frustration of mine that I wish some of my colleagues in the market would actually look at the positives rather than the negative. It's one of those things sometimes, I suppose, because some of those younger people, of course, they haven't had time to build a career and become a name for themselves. Probably us as journalists, again, we're guilty because, of course, we can only do the ones that have the name recognition that will become a headline. So we get this impression that everyone's moving. And it's not necessarily true. Obviously, people are always moving. But then it wouldn't be a news story to say, yeah, BMS hires 30 new graduates this year. It's a bit dull and it sounds a bit like propaganda. So partly our own fault in there. But one more power to your elbow. And thank you so much, Nick. Let's make a promise to each other that it won't be almost three years until we meet again. You've been quite busy. Well, I have. We have been very, very busy. And and, And actually... It feels as though for two or three years, you know, we've been sort of slightly inward looking. And now is the time that having gone through that refinance that we can come out and start talking to the press and talking to our colleagues and talking to the market and everything else. And, it was and certainly a trigger for me. I saw the press release and I thought, oh, he's probably going to be free to talk. Now. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't say that things have slowed up because I've got a new investor who's got a new toy. So they're keen for us to grow. But well, no, but thank you as always. Really, well, really enjoyed off it. Off you go, get your head down and do all the things you have to do. And then you know, when it's time to resurface and get some air, then make sure we'll you spend some time touch. talking to of the course. voice of insurance. Will do. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. 
Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>